fixed country with the Palestinians and the Israelis, and both have a claim uh, on the land. Um, and and it's, just, it's just difficult. It's really difficult. And everyone who lives there says that, that it is. But, but they, um, I, don't, I don't want to speak into that situation so much. I want to just share with you the thing that I felt God impressed on me more than anything else uh, while I was over there. And this went on for all of the days that I was there. But the, I'm talking about building spiritual muscles. And girls, there are so many Israeli guys who look like that. And... Guys, there are so many gorgeous Israeli girls who are also fit and trim. And there's a reason for that, and that is because everyone has to go into the army. So you see these 20-year-olds, and they are active, and they are fit, and, and some of them are working out just every night, you know, down on the beach at Tel Aviv and things particularly. Um, there's a gym equipment down there, and they're skiding with one another and just doing their thing. But, you know, I, I want to talk about us getting spiritual muscles as well. And the thing that struck me more than anything else in those early couple of days was I was saying to God, how can this be the promised land? Yeah. Israel was different to what I expected. Sure, the sites were what I expected. But how can this be the promised land? I'm sitting on top of a small mountain with the, all the team. We went up with, there by the bus, so there's no exertion to get up there. But looking down on Shechem, on the place where, where Abraham settled after he'd come from the north and come all down to Shechem, and thinking, how can this be the promised land? A land flowing with milk and honey was how it was described. I thought, New Zealand has got much better land. What is it about this place that's, that's here? And I, really, I realized really starkly that the fulfillment of the milk and honey required some sort of battle, some definite belief, and some hard work to break through and experience the milk and honey life in Israel. And it's been that way since the beginning when Abraham came. And it was like that when the, they came back in, in the, out of Exodus. And, and it's like that for the Israelis coming and the Jews coming back today. You see, it was a land that God had promised to Abraham. He said, Abraham, come with me out of, out of where he was up in, in the area of Turkey. And God says, I've got a place I want to show you. This is going to be your land. So God selected the land for the Jewish people. He wanted that land. And if you go to the next slide, you'll, you'll see that that brownish, or it looks even a bit green here, uh, the area that is Israel, is actually a, a trade route that joins continents. It joins Europe. It joins Africa. It joins Saudi Arabia and Asia. And, and interestingly, God didn't do everything he was going to do with his people. And when Jesus came in a land that was obscure, he chose a place that everyone was passing through if they were going somewhere. It's not a place of insignificance at all. And when God um, brought the... Or Abraham came, just a little bit of history, if you're to remember, Abraham came and he... he, he came into this place called Shechem, and he lived there, and then there was a famine, and so he took his family down into Egypt, and they were in Egypt for 40-odd um, years, and uh, 400 years, and, and during that time, the Israeli people, the Jewish people became strong. You would tend to do that as a slave people. You're working physically demandingly, and the whole nation became a huge company of people who interestingly, 
when they left, were probably about a million in size of the men. And then that makes it well over 2 million, maybe towards 3 million when you add women and children in as well. And they were a force now of a size to actually come and to retake the land that had been promised to Abraham 400 years earlier. Are you with me? So God has timing in there. And, And God took them to a place where they would have to cross the Jordan River. And it was much, much wider than it is now, and it was in full flood. And it was like God was showing off. They didn't have to cross the Jordan River to get into Israel. They could go down to the bottom of the Red sea, uh, Dead Sea, like you can today, and walk in. Go from Jordan into Israel. But God said, no, 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 no. You come up here where I'm going to show everybody with another demonstration. God was kind of showing off. I'll part the sea, and you'll go across on dry land again. Because he wanted to put the fear of God into the people of the land. You see, Israel re-inheriting the land and turning it into a place that flows like milk and honey is a pattern of our walk with Jesus. And that's what stood out to me as I'm sitting on a hill looking at the land. Have a look at what I was looking at. Israel grows rocks. There are enough rocks in Israel to keep building buildings for thousands of years. That's a field of rocks. They're everywhere. I did not expect that. Kiwi farmers would go, where's the good stuff? I'm not, gonna, I'm not stopping here. Have a look at the next picture. This is where we were sitting up the top, and that's a Jewish settlement in the, what they call the West Bank, the Palestinian-governed area within Israel, which, which is a large section of the middle of Israel, the uh, country of Israel. And, and, but do you see, you can see houses, but do you see the rocks? Yeah. I mean, it's only an iPhone, but there's rocks everywhere. Why did God call this land the promised land, I'm saying, especially flowing with milk and honey? God, you've made a mistake, it almost seems like. Now, scholars tell us that within the Old Testament is hidden the New Testament. In other words, there are things in the Old Testament which are illustrations, which are examples of exactly what Jesus would do in the New Testament. And there are things in the Old Testament that are illustrations and examples that are what our Christian life will be working out. So when they were living in the Old Testament, in in certain uh, instances, the New Testament writers say, this refers to Jesus. This refers to Christians that are yet to be born also. An example of that would be the Passover and the sacrificial system. When they're killing animals, it's referring, it's a picture, it's an illustration of what Jesus was going to do. Can you see what I'm saying? In the Old Testament, but it's a picture of what was yet to come. The tabernacle is, is a picture or an illustration of what Jesus would do. He would enter heaven with his blood, just like the high priest would enter once a year. Just happened in, in uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, uh, where he would go in once a year and he would take the blood that would have been sacrificed and it would be for the forgiveness of everyone's sin. But Jesus took his own blood to heaven and, and fulfilled that. Doesn't have to happen over and over and over again. The veil of the tabernacle is a, is a symbol. Actually, what I'm talking about biblically is called types. Just, just spell the word type to yourself. Typology. 
And typology means a picture in the Old Testament that has a parallel truth in the New Testament. The veil of the tabernacle is a type of Jesus' body. Because you'll remember when when the um, crucifixion had finished and Jesus says, it is finished, there was an earthquake. And as part of that, the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holy place rent, was torn top to bottom, and it, it wasn't humanly torn from the bottom all the way up, but God did it from the top all the way down. And it's a picture of Jesus' body that would be totally torn so that the access to the Father could come for people in our time, in our day. They're symbols. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, to say, I'm saying all that to say this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 to 13, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt is a type or an illustration or a picture or a symbol of our journey in life. And all the different people involved in that are, illustrate things that we know about in this life. Let me read, or we'll put it on the screen and you can read. Okay, for I do not want you to be ignorant. Oh, can you see if you can find 1 Corinthians 10? Is, it, is that the next slide? All right, just listen to me. Um, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. And they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples. That's the, that's the word type. It's tupos in, in the Greek language. Type. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, uh, 23,000 of them died. And we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angels. And then it says, and again, these things happened as types. These things happened as an Old Testament picture of what it would be like in, in our day. They uh, were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So their life and experience of coming out of Egypt and coming across the desert and into the promised land is a pattern for us. I hope you can take that on board. We also will be tested in these same areas that they will, and we will have to battle. Now, I'm thinking all this on top of this little mountainous area while I'm looking at all the rocks and this and wondering where's the flowing milk and honey how does this work so we also will be have to battle in these areas the same ones as they do and look let's be honest who hasn't had to battle with whether God will be first in our lives whether we will put God first in our lives instead of career or sport or leisure or family 
Who, who hasn't had to battle as to whether we will come to church and do what God says and continually gather together so that we can be built up and God's church can grow? Who hasn't had to battle as to whether God will be first? And who hasn't had to battle with sexual temptation? Please stand. We would love to congratulate you. It's there. And who hasn't had to grumble and uh, battle against grumbling and being negative in our attitude about our Christian life? God, I thought this was supposed to be the abundant life flowing with milk and honey. How come I'm eating porridge? How come I haven't got what some other Christian's living? How come? How come? Who hasn't had to battle in those same things? The internal mind and heart battles that every one of us has to do. And Christians that don't, even though they might have a genuine experience with Christ, it's pretty soon the things of the world take over and the hardness is there. The Bible says it's like the seed that the sower sows out, but it falls on such land, the devil comes, he eats the seed, and they don't last. But we have to battle. And I'm sitting thinking, this land, it requires battling. On the top of that mountain. And that wasn't the only thing I was thinking about. You see, we were baptized into Moses, it says, and he's a type or an illustration of Jesus. Moses came to set the people of Israel free from Egypt, and Egypt is a type of the world. And Jesus came, because Moses is the type of Jesus, Jesus came to people of our day, and he, he came to set us free from the effect of the world. And in the world, there's a pharaoh called Satan who has taskmasters who whip and beat and, and push people and, and come upon people and just destroy the good things that could happen around people's lives. True? This is what happens in life. And just as Moses set the Israelites free, Jesus has set New Testament people free. And as I'm in Israel looking at this rocky land and I'm looking down on, on the Palestinian settlements, which you can't quite see, but they're way over, over there, and, and, and thinking about the clashes that at times occur between Israeli and Palestinian, and seeing how ready all of the Israeli people are to go to war. I mean, they all go into the army or, or air force or whatever part of the forces, and, and they're there for two or three years, but then they get out, but every year they go back and retrain, and you're in, in the army till you're 50. So you're never really out. You're ready at a moment's notice to go to war. And there's, there's police and army walking in the streets with their submachine guns that if someone's going to do something, they'll take them out. And you realize just the, the, the readiness to fight and battle that is there. And I, 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 the day before, I'd heard about 1948 and how the, the British left, as I said last week, on the, on the 14th of May, the last ship left from, Palestine, uh, from Israel um, and the, the leaders of the country got together. Ben-Gurion was the, the main one. I don't think I have a picture of him, but oh, we're back into some things. Um, and five nations were going to attack. And Ben-Gurion said something like this. He says, we've lost six million of our people in World War II. It's just over. We might as well declare us a country again, Israel, and then take what arms we've got and go out and fight and probably die. But at least we'll die on our own land. I thought, wow, what a spirit and a heart in these people. 
And I sat remembering the journey of Joshua and the three million Jews and the fight for Jericho and then the fight for Ai and then the fight for the next city and the fight that they had for the next city again and every other city. And I realized that typology informs us just as Moses and Joshua and the people had to constantly fight to inherit everything God had promised them, even fighting the land itself for its lack of water, I realized that nothing comes to us in the Christian life either without fighting for it. It's ours by position, it's ours by right, a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land that God has got for you. Point to the neighbor and say to them, God's got a promised land for you. And whether you're going to have inherited it by the time you hit the grave or not is determined a lot by whether you are willing to go after it and to believe for it and to pray for it and to build spiritual muscles and to stand up and be who God has called you to be. You know, this land has some amazingly lush, beautiful parts in it. But not many of them are absolutely natural. They've been formed. They've been made. They've been developed. You know, there's a lush, thriving place for every single one of us that has rest, that has refreshment, it has happiness, it has hope, it has provision, it has love, it has fulfillment. John 10.10 puts it really well. I've come that you might have an abundant life. But we have to break through into that abundant life, city by city, just as they did in their day. And I believe unless we believe and spiritually fight for what is ours, and in the natural, walk forward towards it, then we won't see it happen. And I have, over my 35, four years of being a pastor in a church, I have seen so many Christians start strong and then slowly lose their way. You know what happens to land in New Zealand when you just let it go? Stuff grows, doesn't it? Weeds, thistles, trees, problems. Well, in Israel, if you leave most of the land there to itself, it becomes sand. It becomes desert again. And I've seen so many Christians in my time of, of walking and leading in the body of Christ who started strong but they gave up. They stopped going after what could be. They stopped taking the things I believe. I believe they stopped taking the things that God had before them and saying, God, I'm after this. You've spoken to me about this, God. It may not be happening, but it's out there in the future. I believe. And broken through into their, into their milk and honey experience that God has for them. There's a, can we just go on a photo or two? This is Tel Aviv. It's, I think there's a couple of million people that may, be, that may be multiplied beyond that. Can I show you what it was at the beginning in 1900? That's people at, a, at an auction for house sites in Tel Aviv. The Jewish people know how to make something that is not much into something that is amazing. Just flick back. 100 years later, 
is this amazingly modern city. Go back to it. But that's what they built it out of. Because they could see beyond what, was ex- what they could see with their eyes. They were buying house sites. Other people are seeing desert. Many people just rode in camels across it and carried on. But these Jewish people here, they knew this was the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. They knew how to fight. They knew how to see. They knew how to go after what God had for them and to build it there. Miriam gave a really great devotion while we were there, and she said, have you won the battle against that which wars against you? Have you won the battle against that which wars against you? It started me thinking. It started me helping to form this of what God was saying to me while I was there. And it takes discernment because do you know what's fighting against you? Do you know what's resisting you? Do you know what's holding you back? Do you know what's distracting you? Because the enemy is active. Have you won the battle of, of what's fighting against you? It's seeking to rob, kill, and destroy around our lives. It might be in the area of health. It might be in any other area as well. And I wonder really if you've won the first battle. If you've really won the first battle, because the first battle is a battle that never stops. The spies, when the people came across the land, it was only an 11-day journey. They spent 40 years. They sent the spies in. After a couple of weeks, they get to the place where they're supposed to um, explore the land, come back, and then cross over and invade, fight, battle, take what God has said is theirs. And the problem was the spies and the people didn't know who they were. And they didn't know whose they were. And because they didn't know who they were, and they didn't know whose they were, they didn't know that they had authority to go forward. Those verses that we had before um, are are the ones I'm after now. Um, This was their report to Moses. The spies said, We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it's indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. And the Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites and, and Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread a bad report about the land amongst the Israelites. Grumble, 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 grumble. That's why God says it's one of the four biggies. It's dangerous. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. And next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought, and I've added in, about us, because that's what it means. They're saying, we saw these massive people, and they were looking at us going, come on, I'll just... Wipe you out the way. In fact, we've got Roundup. We'll just deal with you. And so they went back and they lived in sand 
for 40 years. Sand, when they could have had rocks. They believed lies. They believed lies that Satan was giving them and their own spirit was giving them. We can't do it. Who are we to think that we could beat giants and fortified cities? We can't do it. And because they never challenged the internal lies that have been governing their lives, they didn't go for the things that they could have gone for. And it's the same with us. You know, when we, when we think, uh, want to take that job and we're thinking, oh, oh, no, I'm useless. I could never compete with those others that'll be, oh, I could never do that. And we settle for what's here. And God's saying, no, 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 don't you know how I think of you? I was listening to Charles Hewitt, who's the national leader of the Baptist Union, on Wednesday. He was down here speaking to all of us as pastors, or senior leaders anyway. And Kim asked him a question. Kim, who was preaching here last week, he said, tell us about you. Tell us about your life. Who are you? And so I expected he would start talking about Janine, his wife, and his children. And, and he said, oh, thank you for that question. I'm chosen. I'm chosen by God. And I'm loved by God. And I'm a son of the man who made the universe. The God who made the universe. You all knew what I meant. He knows who he is. And it took Minutes and minutes and minutes before he started to talk about the normal, mundane sort of stuff of his wife and his children. He talked about who he is in Christ. And unless we know who we are in Christ, we haven't got much chance of winning any battles or exercising any authority. What a, what a tragedy that three million odd people spent their life in sand when they were supposed to be in a land flowing with milk and honey, inheriting fields that they didn't plant and houses that they didn't build and agriculture in all sorts of ways and infrastructure of their day, but they didn't because they never challenged the lies on the inside. You know, we're going on to a series that that is all about challenging of lies and trying to examine them, and challenge them, and changing our thinking so that... See, one of the things Charles said that was, was so um, profound, he said, every day I have to get up and tell myself that. And I'm nodding my head going, yeah, it's pretty true for me too. Because we've been programmed for however many years we've, we've been alive to think that we're less than, to think that we don't matter, to think that what we've done in our life determines who we are. And God says, no, it doesn't. You're royalty. You're royalty because I call you royalty. And it's people who are like that who have the ability to walk into situations that they're totally freaked out about, but do it with a confidence of who's behind us, who's backing us, whose will is it that's there. Is this making sense to you? It's the first battle. It's the first battle we have to win. And there are places of real beauty. Just have a look at some of these in Israel. 
This is um, En Gedi. This is, this is David's Paul. So when David was under uh, being chased by Saul, he spent a lot of time in this region. It's, it's in the Negev Desert, on the edge of the Negev Desert. Um, but this pool is beautiful. It's just an amazing waterfall. And the next one just shows you the view out onto the Dead Sea um, as, as you come down some of the tracks in the, in the desert that are there. What else have we got? Oh, yeah, this is us uh, up by the um, Sea of Galilee at, a, at a hot, our hotel on one of the last nights we were together. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful place. Next day, got up and just went swimming in the Sea of Galilee. This is um, looking out onto the Sea of Galilee from one of the gardens with a beautiful church behind. And the last one, you know, we would say that could be anywhere in New Zealand, couldn't it? The land of beauty, the land of the promised land for us, New Zealand. Hello, Kiwis. We haven't got Aussies here, have we? This is us. Oh, you're welcome. God bless you. We love you, cousin, cousy. But this, this is the kind of beauty that you, that you have in, in, um, in Israel as well. And this is where, going down into the place where, where Jesus reinstated Peter um, and, and called him into the, the role that, that he has. It's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And David, he wrote this, he said, um, he, in Psalm 23, He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside quiet, peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along the right paths, bringing honor to his name. And David's just talking about the beauty of life, hey? Yeah. He's in an amazing place. But David had his fair share of battles. And it's the battles that got him to the place where he actually was able to experience that beside beautiful brooks and waters. Think of the things that shaped David and made him into a great leader. His first battle was insignificance. When Samuel comes to his home to anoint the, the leader, um, his father gets all of the boys out and they brushes them up, spruces their hair, lines them up, and Samuel says, not you, 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 not you. They didn't have TV. And so there was a lot in the family. And, he, and Samuel gets to the end, and he says, he said to them, is there anyone else? And he goes, oh, well, there is a runt. He's out with the, he's out with the, the sheep. Samuel goes, well, call him in, knowing that it's not these guys, so it must be the next one. If there's just one more. Some commentators say David might have been an illegitimate child. And so because of that, just look down on. That's just supposition. But certainly David would have had to battle with insignificance. The most important thing that's ever happened in their family's life, and he's not even invited because he doesn't matter. And this man who had to battle with insignificance, I, my voice doesn't count. I'm not tall enough. I don't have any sort of impression, uh, you know, impressiveness about my life that my father thinks something of me. He became the king because he battled against the giant in his own, inside himself, in his heart and in his mind. He renewed his mind to think how God thought about him. And then he had to battle, what was it? The, the don't tell me Goliath. What was the next? A bear and a lion. Man, that's not bad going, is it? And then finally he has to battle his brothers because he takes some food down. Dad, get, let, me, let me do something to get to the battlefront. And we actually went to the spot. It's a really, I'll tell you about it one day. And, and we, he gets down there and, and, and then he says, I can fight Goliath. And his brothers just wanted to die. Oh, you idiot. Just get behind, go back to dad, take the bread, get away. 
So he had to fight against the the peer pressure of people that mattered in his life, saying, you still don't amount to anything, even if that prophet did anoint you. You're nothing. And then he takes on Goliath as well, and he actually defeats him. And I think I've got a picture from what I saw (laughs) on on the web. Yeah. But you know, after he'd beaten in each instance... He came into seasons of peace. He came into seasons of fulfillment. He came into seasons of joy. He came into seasons of prosperity. He came into seasons of abundance. He came into seasons of influence. And this is what happens. The very thing that prepares us is overcoming often the inner battles and sometimes the outer battles prepares us for where God wants us to be. The American Negro preacher that often is at Hillsong, um, T.D. Jakes, had a good illustration. And he said, God's constantly causing us to climb stairs. And you climb 10 stairs, and you go on a landing, and God's saying, now there's another 10 for you to climb. Stair number one is a battle that is something internal. Stair number two is a battle about what someone said. Stair number three might be an external battle. And you get all the way up to stair number 10, and you walk around, but you start on number one again. (laughs) There are some things. It could be a recurring sin problem that just constantly sees you fall. But you know, the Bible says the steps of a good man or a woman are ordered by God. And though they fall, though they fall, they will not be cast down. For the Lord upholds them with his right hand. And he says, get up, my child. Get up, my royal, royal son or daughter. Get up, my princess. You can do this. And takes us forward and we climb again as we go after the things that God has got for us. And David got to be the king, but then he faced more battles. And the scripture says at a time when kings should be out at war, he was looking over the parapet of the the city of David. And I saw just a little bit of the city of David. And you look down into a a ravine um, not too far away, and then it climbs up and there's housing over there as well as graves and things. And he saw a woman having a bath. And we know the story that he lusted for her. And he brought her to him and they had sex. And it led to the murder, him mur- having the, um, the woman's husband murdered. And the grace of God, that God forgave David, just illustrates the amazing power of the time that we live in, our covenant, where God has forgiven. It's absolutely amazing. And yet David would have battled even more inner voices and inner demons, if I can call I don't mean literal, inner, inner turmoil is what I'm trying to say. How did he break through? Well, the scripture tells us that one of the main things David did to break through was worship. Yeah. Worship, worship, worship. He knew how to worship as a young boy when he was out with just the sheep. The sheep loved his voice, even if no one else did. And he just nurtured it and nurtured it. And then when he was the king, he brought the, he heard about um, where the presence of God was in the ark. The whole family, in fact, the whole region got blessed because the ark was there. 
And so he said, the ark's there, we've got to bring it back. And he brought the ark back into, into Jerusalem and he set up a tent there and he started praise and worship and he trained the musicians and he trained the singers and he said, I want you to be on the morning shift, you're on the afternoon shift, you're on the evening shift, you're on the first night shift, you're on the second night shift and then the morning shift would start again. And for 30 years, they tell us, praise and worship happened in Jerusalem as he broke through and he broke the people through too. Just going after God's presence, worshipping, worshipping, worshipping. Okay, let me, let me just come to land and um, be quite practical. I, I want to give you an example of how simple and how practical this is. When we were in Israel, Brenda was doing devotions and on one of the days. And I said to Brenda when we were in a, in a front steps of a big church with maybe 30... 40 people all around us, I'd like you to stand up and give the devotions. You just preach. And I am so proud of you, Brenda, because you didn't think of what the inner voices were probably telling you at that time of, I haven't got that much that's important to say. Um, there's all these people I don't know that'll be listening all around. Um, there's only 26 of us, and I've just got a few thoughts. You just got up, and you took what God had given you and you'd prepared and you spoke it out. You challenged the voices that could have shut you down. And that's what I'm talking about. Taking a forward stance again. So I want to ask you, friends, where is your life at? Has your growth plateaued? Are there things that God has promised you or things that you believe that God has for you but year after year, they're just not happening. Are you aware of resistance that's kind of got a glass ceiling over your life? And I want to ask you, do you actually know who you are and whose you are? That you're chosen, you're adopted, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're royalty. Perhaps it's in the area of your career. And as I said, you'd love to apply for that next step, but something in your in your Self is saying to you, don't be foolish. You'll make a fool of yourself. And God's saying, come on, apply. Even if you don't get it, you're going to learn so much about interviewing and, and going after things. Perhaps it's in the ability for you to be able to have a baby and it's just not happening. Or maybe it's in the area of a relationship. It could be that you have a desire to be married, but it hasn't happened. Well, I want to say to you, get back on the front foot. Don't accept that as the final answer. Israel teaches that every city had to be attacked and beaten and then breakthrough came. Are there things that God's spoken into your spirit and into your heart, but you're just stepping back, stepping back, stepping back? Perhaps you want to live with financial provision, but you haven't yet challenged the thinking that says, if I tithe, I won't have enough, so I just can't. And the lie is winning. You know, Israel has made all of this so incredibly real for me that we've got a promised land. It is a, we've got the promise of a promised land. And there, it is to run with milk and honey. So don't let your desire for a larger and a, a, a more fulfilling and a more God-centered life go. 
Don't settle. I've watched people settle sometimes for years, sometimes as I look at them, and I may be wrong, but just looking at their life, it's like for 10 years. They've just been on maintenance instead of going after what God has for them. And it all begins with who you are and whose you are. And you know, the effect of it is that it builds strong character And one of the great aspects of that character is that it builds humility. Charles um, Hewlett, the leader of our Baptist movement, who's just been appointed, as I said, um, has two children who are severely handicapped. One has died already, and the other's 22. And he was just sharing what it was like to to go to where his son is because he's so severely handicapped. I think he has the, the mental age of something like one and a half. Just a, 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 really an infant, a, a baby. And he said, the pain of going somewhere, seeing his son, interacting with people, and coming towards his son, and just wishing his son would recognize him and know who he is, that his face might light up. And Charles has lived with this all his life. And it's made him who he is. He's had to battle with his own internal things. He's had to battle with the circumstances which have not changed. But he's had to battle and win and overcome. And it's made him into the leader that he actually is. And I don't want to say that God causes any sort of bad things to happen. But I know God will use everything that's happening around a person's life. My Bible tells me that it's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, not God. But he calls us to go after the promised land flowing with milk and honey that he has for every single one of us and not to give up. Not to give up. Not to give up. Can I have the team come up? I'm going to invite Miriam, if you'd like to come up, Miriam, and just see if you have something that you'd like prophetically to speak into us this morning.